Our second reading this morning is Numbers chapter 12. Hear the word of God. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses. They criticized him because he married a Cushite woman. They said to themselves, Moses is not the only one the Lord has used to speak to the people. He has also spoken through us. The Lord heard this. Moses was a very humble man. He was humbler than any other man on earth. So suddenly the Lord came and spoke to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He said, you three come to the meeting tent now. So Moses, Aaron, and Miriam went to the tent. The Lord came down in the tall cloud and stood at the entrance to the tent. He called out Aaron and Miriam. They went to him. God said, listen to me. You will have prophets. I, the Lord, will let them learn about me through visions. I will speak to them in dreams, but Moses is not like that. He is my faithful servant. I trust him with everyone in my house. When I speak to him, I talk face to face with him. I don't use stories with hidden meanings. I show him clearly what I want him to know. And Moses can look at the very image of the Lord. So why were you brave enough to speak against my servant Moses? The Lord was very angry with them, and he left them. The cloud rose from the tent. Aaron turned and looked at Miriam. Her skin was white like snow. She had a terrible skin disease. Then Aaron said to Moses, Please, sir, forgive us for the foolish sin that we did. Don't let her lose her skin like a baby who is born dead. Sometimes a baby will be born like that with half of its skin eaten away. So Moses prayed to the Lord, God, please heal her from this sickness. The Lord answered Moses, if her father spit in her face, she would be shamed for seven days. So put her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can come back into the camp. So they took Miriam outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move from that place until she was brought in again. After that, the people left Hazaroth and traveled to the desert of Paran, where they set up camp. This is the word of the Lord. Let us join our hearts together in prayer. Almighty God, you are the maker of heaven and earth, and your mercies are new each day. And we thank you for this day, this Sabbath day, which you have set aside uh, to be holy to yourself. We thank you that we are able to gather here in comfort and in freedom this morning to fellowship with one another and to commune with you. We pray that as we continue to worship you this morning that uh, we would draw closer to you. I pray that we would capture a clearer vision of who you are and of who we are. I pray that as we approach your word that we would see ourselves and see yourself more clearly. 
We pray for our church. We pray for our leadership. We pray for our session, which will meet to, uh, on this Tuesday. We ask that you continue to stir their hearts up, uh, that they would be uh, leaders uh, in deed and not just in name. We pray that they would love their people well, that they would have a heart for the lost. Lord, we pray that we as a church would be constantly inviting the world uh, into our doors and welcoming them uh, into this fellowship. We pray for those of our numbers who are not able to be here this morning. Uh, We pray that you would be present to them uh, even as they are absent from us. Lord, for those of our numbers who are uh, facing uh, trials and difficulties in their circumstances or in their bodies, we uh, do pray uh, your help. We ask that you would continue to uh, heal Dwayne. We thank you for bringing him up up and out of the hospital. We pray that you uh, uh, would be present with the Warakow family as they grieve the loss uh, of Elizabeth uh, during this time. We pray for Gail as she prepares to go into surgery tomorrow. We pray that that would move smoothly and successfully, and we pray that you would uh, raise her up and make her strong again. We pray this morning for Sam and his daughter, Nora. We pray that you would draw them closer to one another, that you would bless them, and that you would protect them. Father God, we ask these favors of you because you have proven yourself uh, so faithful in the past. Um, So many times you have answered our prayers. Uh, Forgive us uh, for being negligent uh, of the blessings that we've received. Make us more grateful uh, than we are. We ask this day that you would continue to be present with us here in worship, and then when we go from this place, that we would go out uh, in strength and in grace and in power uh, to touch your world and to, and to minister in your name. These prayers we offer in the name of Jesus, who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Uh, Two quick pieces of business. What month is this? April? Okay, they showed up. All right, you know, you think, you think, I don't know. I don't know what to think. They're here. Uh, Those of you who like these, enjoy them. This is the sign-up sheet for the workday. I use them. I like them. You can sign that and pass that around. All right, so this week we continue uh, in our sermon series through the book of Numbers. We took off the last two weeks uh, for seasonal sermons, uh, you know, for Palm Sunday and Holy Week and for Easter The book of Numbers is the historical account of the pilgrimage of the chosen people uh, on their way to the promised land. It's a journey that's going to take them 40 years. In the book of Exodus, we saw how God supernaturally extracted the descendants of Abraham out of Egypt where they had lived for 400 years and had descended into a state of slavery in the beginning Things were fine in Egypt. Joseph was the number two man in the kingdom and his family enjoyed special privileges. But 
by the time we get to Moses, the Egyptians are killing Israelite boys and it was time to leave. So God commissions Moses and sends ten plagues to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. The book of Numbers begins after the Exodus. The people are there at Mount Sinai. The children of Israel have crossed the Red Sea. The Egyptian army has been drowned. God's chosen people are free, but there's still a lot of work that has to be done. Yes, God rescued the Israelites from slavery and from oppression, but that was just the beginning. God had bigger plans for them. He intended to shape them into a nation that would represent him in this world. He intended for them to become a light to all nations. He intended for them to not only be blessed, but to be a blessing. And one day, through that nation, he would give a Messiah and a Savior who would become the atoning sacrifice for all of God's people from every nation. But before all of that could happen, First, these newly freed but still unformed people would have to receive a law which would give a shape to their religious life, to their civil life, and to their private life. God's law reveals to God's people God's own mind, his own heart, his priorities, his goals. God's law tells us what God loves and what God hates. And yes... God is love, but there are things that God hates. In Proverbs chapter 6, we read, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, those aren't the only things that God hates. The list in Proverbs chapter 6 is not exhaustive, but notice what it begins with, with haughty eyes. Haughty eyes that look down on other people. Haughty eyes that think that they are better than other people. Haughty eyes that reveal the sin of pride. In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, he's talking to Christians here, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. When we're prideful, it's almost like we're drunk. We don't see things the way they really are. In our pride, we only see things through our own eyes, from our own perspective. We imagine ourselves to be the center of the universe, the most important person in the room, the one who deserves the limelight and the special consideration. When the Holy Spirit inspired that list of seven things that God hates, pride is number one on the list. And that should make us think about what it would look like to be a godly person, a God-pleasing person. If haughty eyes are an abomination to God, what would be pleasing to God? If pride and haughtiness are the number one no-no's, What would be the primary and the defining characteristic of the Christian life, of the sanctified life, of the godly life? Well, it has to be humility. Now, that doesn't mean that every humble person is godly, but I do think that it means that every godly person is humble. 
Because to be godly, I have to have a relationship with God. And if I have a relationship with God, I realize that I am not God. I realize that I am not the center of the universe. I realize that it isn't all about me. I realize that I am, at best, just a sinner saved by grace. So who am I to judge others and look down on them with haughty eyes? The closer I draw to God, the more I mature in my faith, the more I become aware of just how exalted and pure and holy God is. And the more I become aware of just how low and corrupted and contemptible I am. When we draw nearer to God and to his light, we see our flaws more clearly. Christians become more humble as they draw closer to God. The mature Christian has a clearer sense of his own sinfulness than the immature Christian. When we stand next to God, we see how shabby we are. It's kind of how we evaluate our clothing. It depends on who you're standing next to. When I hang out with the fellows of the Presbyterian Stogie Society in the church barn, I wear Carhartt overalls and a pair of work boots all blotched with paint. And that's fine because everyone else in the barn is dressed like a bum too. In that company, my Carhartts are normal and okay, but when I go to lunch at the Union League, I have to wear a Brooks Brothers suit and a freshly pressed shirt and I make sure that my shoes are polished. And why? Because everyone else in the club will be sharply dressed and the beauty of my attire will be judged in comparison to the beauty of theirs. When we are by ourselves, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we might be pretty impressed with what we see. At least if you're a guy. I mean, every guy thinks that he is above average. Women have the opposite problem. But by ourselves, we look in the mirror and we think, oh, that's not too bad. But when we stand next to God, all of a sudden we realize how threadbare we are. The Bible tells us that Moses was a very humble man. He was more humble than any other man on earth. Why was he so humble? Well, because he was so close to God. No one ever had such an up-close view of God in all of his power and all of his holiness as Moses. Even though God appointed Moses as a kind of prophet king over a whole nation, Moses had a sober opinion about himself. It wasn't a job that he had sought out. When God told him that it would be his job to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, he says, you've got the wrong guy. I'm not qualified. And as Moses' relationship with God grows over time, Moses came to see ever more deeply how much he needed God, just how much he was not able to do the job that he had been called to. Moses was a very humble man. He was more humble than any other man on earth because Moses was very close to God. He was closer to God than any man on earth. This past Monday, Elizabeth Warakow died. Though 
she and her family had been part of this church for nearly 10 years. She always had a very low profile around here. Maybe you didn't even know her because she never shined a light on herself. Her death was unexpected. She was young and active, working six days a week. Two weeks ago, she was feeling a little poorly, had some flu symptoms, and her husband, Ernan, took her to the emergency room, and then very quickly everything went wrong. And all of her organs shut down. And within a week, she was dead. I was with her uh, on Tuesday and on Saturday last week, and her family was gathered around her at that time. This past Friday, the Philadelphia Inquirer ran a very long obituary reviewing her life and work. You understand, of course, there's a difference between an obituary and a death notice. A death notice is written by the family, and they pay to have it in the paper. But an obituary is an article that the paper writes because they regard the deceased as newsworthy. The Inquirer wrote an article, a long article about Elizabeth because of the important place that she had in the Philadelphia community. She and her husband, Hernan, launched Aldea, a Spanish-language newspaper, more than 30 years ago. And ever since, they have been actively involved in the life of the community here in Philadelphia. Several times a year, they organize large events to highlight leaders in the community to promote causes that they thought worth supporting Every once in a while, Ernan would invite me to attend, to say a few words, and to offer an opening prayer. And after praying in front of hundreds of people in packed and glittering rooms, I would sit down to lunch with governors and mayors and ambassadors and bishops and university presidents and leaders in every field of human endeavor. The Archbishop of Philadelphia shook my hand after I prayed to God that he would grab us by the scruff of our necks if we neglected the poor in our midst. Ambassador Peter Longstreth, the son of Philadelphia Republican Blue Blood, leaned over to me and he fingered the lapel of my bright red jacket and he said that he admired a man who had the cheek to wear that jacket in this club. And all the while, as speeches were made and plans were launched, Elizabeth Waraka was busy seeing to the needs of people, making sure that everyone was taken care of, quietly, behind the scenes. On many occasions, I have prayed with Elizabeth, often right there in the back of this sanctuary. She wanted prayer for her husband, who worked too hard. She wanted prayer for her girls, who were launching into the world. She wanted prayer for her family that they would be united and at peace with each other. I think that last prayer was answered as we gathered around her bed at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital, and we prayed for her, and we prayed for ourselves, and we read the familiar words of Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. In 2014, Elizabeth and her husband, Ernan, and daughter, 
Anna joined the HVPC mission trip to an orphanage uh, in Guatemala. And this week, uh, I asked around if anyone had pictures of Elizabeth uh, from that trip. And the only one that came back to me was a picture of her cutting carrots in the kitchen in an orphanage in Guatemala. This is the person that the Philadelphia Inquirer deemed worthy of an extended obituary. And if I think about our membership, about all of the people who go to this church, there is not another one of us that the Philadelphia Inquirer would bother to take notice of if we died. We're just ordinary people. But the great one among us, we hardly noticed. Now you may remember that in Numbers chapter 11, we had two rounds of complaining going on. Poor Moses has led the children of Israel out of slavery, but once they're out in the desert, they start grumbling and complaining. The people started complaining about their troubles, and there certainly were troubles in the pilgrimage from slavery to the promised land, and God hears their complaining, and he becomes angry, and a fire breaks out, burning the edge of the camp, and Moses prays to God, and the fire stops. But then a second bout of grumbling and complaining starts. This time it's about the food. Oh, we're so sick of this stupid manna magic food falling out of heaven that's not good enough for us we want some of those onions that we had back in Egypt and God is angry again and in his ironic fury God gives them so many quail that they eat so much that they get sick and die in chapter 12 we have a new kind of complaint this is not the grumbling and complaining of the masses who are camped out there in the desert. This new complaint is the grumbling of Moses' brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam. This is not so much complaining about the harsh living conditions as it is the desire to have or to share the power that Moses has. Miriam and Aaron are envious. Moses is the prophet king of the entire nation and his brother and sister who were close to his power think to themselves, maybe we should be the ones who have the power, who get to make the big decisions. And they'd say to themselves, Moses isn't the only one that God has used to speak to the people. He's also sp spoken through us. The first two rounds of complaining and grumbling were about hard conditions and uh, a nostalgic longing for how things used to be, even if that actually was slavery. But the third round of complaining is a combination of pride and envy. Envy says, I cannot be happy if you have something that I don't have. Pride says, I'm better than you and so I should have more than you. In this emergent nation of Israel, Aaron and Miriam are the second and the third most powerful people out of millions of people. And still, they're not satisfied. Even though they are way near the top of the human pyramid, they are envious and discontented that they're not at the very pinnacle. Their brother has been called 
by God to lead the chosen people and they are unable to enjoy or to celebrate the high calling that God has given him. Instead of being happy for him, instead of holding him up, they want to tear him down so that they can be at the top of the heap. The closer we draw to God, the more humble we become. Which is why a man clawing his way to the top, a man stepping over other people, that man is never a man of God. The Bible says, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. People who are exalting themselves are not working for God. The Bible says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. There is no place for pride on God's team. Pride and godliness are opposites. What Miriam and Aaron want is the power of being number one. And so they attack and they criticize the person that God has put into that position. But notice the attack they make. We read in verse 1, they criticized him because he married a Cushite woman. So what does that have to do with whether or not Moses should lead the nation? In Exodus, we read about Moses killing an Egyptian taskmaster and running for his life to a place called Midian. Midian is the northwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula that would be all the way across the Sinai Peninsula, but still south of what is Israel today. There in Midian, he lives with a Midianite priest named Jethro, and he marries his daughter, Zipporah. And the Bible tells us that Zipporah and Moses had two sons, Gershon and Eliezer. So if Zipporah is a Midianite, is this Cushite woman mentioned in Numbers a second wife? Or if the woman Miriam and Aaron are complaining about is in fact Zipporah, why is she called Cushite here and Midianite elsewhere? This is one of those passages of scripture that is in fact Unclear, and there is disagreement among the scholars on this passage. The majority of scholars conclude that Moses had two wives. I, however, take the minority position on this question. I believe he only had one wife. The first century Jewish historian Josephus says that Moses' first wife was a Cushite princess named Tharbis. I don't know if you remember this, but Moses, uh, you know, was supposed to have been a general who uh, worked for the Egyptian army, and and he was involved in the conquest of of Ethiopia. And so apparently there he was supposed to have met this woman and married her. Zipporah, according to Josephus, was Moses' second wife. The very exotic Tharbis, by the way, appears in Cecil B. DeMille's 1956 epic, the Ten Commandments, I think that Josephus and DeMille have influenced Bible scholars. 
The only problem with DeMille and Josephus is that Josephus is writing 1,400 years after Moses and DeMille is making movies 3,400 years after Moses. They're not exactly reliable witnesses. So what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says a lot about Moses. And the Bible never mentions a second wife. The Bible never uses the name Tharbis for the Cushite woman. The Bible tells us about Moses' two sons, and they're both sons of Zipporah. So I think it's reasonable to assume that Moses had one wife, that her name is Zipporah, and that Moses' brother and sister don't like her. But if I'm right, why is Moses' wife called a Cushite here in Numbers chapter 12, but a Midianite in Exodus? Midian, okay, is the northwest part of the Arabian Peninsula. Cush is what we call Ethiopia today. So they're, they're near neighbors, but they're separated by the Red Sea. I think the answer is this. Aaron and Miriam were racists. Their complaint about Zipporah is that she's not a pure-blood Israelite. Exodus says that she was a Midianite. The Midianites were, like the Samaritans, a kind of mixed-race relative of the Israelites. But her racial difference, the brother and sister heighten in their minds so that they see her as an ebony-skinned Cushite woman from deep in Africa. Of all the reasons to have haughty eyes, of all the reasons to think oneself superior, racial pride has to be the stupidest. And God's punishment for the prideful complaining of Miriam is deliciously ironic. God says to her, you think you're so great? You think you're better than your dark-skinned sister-in-law? Well, let me turn your skin as white as snow with a deadly disease. The children of Israel have a relationship with God. And if we have a relationship with God, we realize that we're not as special as we think we are. We realize that we are no better than other people. The closer that we draw to God, the more sober is our view of ourselves, the more humble we become. Aaron and Miriam, by the luck of being born into the right family, are at the right hand of power. But they're still discontent and grumbling, and so God has to teach them a lesson about humility, about not being better than others, about not complaining against God or against the people that God has put over us. The book of Numbers is a book for Christians because it is a book about the pilgrim journey of a child of God on the way to the promised land. That's who we are. That's where we are. And some of the lessons we will learn on the way are going to be rough. But we will thank God for them because God only chastens and disciplines those he loves. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the privilege 
to stand before you uh, this day. We thank you that we can come into the throne room of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the maker of heaven and earth. Lord God, we are amazed that you wanted to have a relationship with us and that you have communicated with us down through the years. We thank you for the testimony that we find in the book of Numbers uh, to what was going on with your people way back then. We thank you that these things were recorded for us for, for our edification. We pray that the lessons of how our brothers and sisters behaved before might be lessons that we would learn. Lord God, I pray that you would show yourself to us more and more that we would have an ever-exalted view of you. I pray that as you show us yourself, your holiness and your justice and your beauty, that we might begin to see more clearly that we are not those things, that we fall far short of the mark. And even as we come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit for the sin in our lives, Lord, I just pray that you would make us marvel at the the fact that you love us all the same and that you have desired to have fellowship with us so much that you not only sent the prophets in ancient times, but that you also sent the Lord Jesus as your full and complete revelation to not only preach to us and to not only model for us how we should live, but to also die an atoning death for us so that we could be saved. Lord, we know that we are saved not by our goodness, not because we are right or true or perfect, but because we have faith in Christ and that by that faith our sins are forgiven. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give that faith to anyone who may not have it yet. I pray for those who have that faith that you would grow that faith, that we would be more delighted by what it is that you've accomplished in us than ever. Lord, show us how far we've come. Show us how far we still have to go. Lord, walk with us in this pilgrim journey during this time where we are freed from slavery but not yet in the promised land. Lord, we are your church. You have established this church against this church. Nothing uh, will come that will destroy us. We pray that you would continue to strengthen your church to bring honor and glory to yourself, to bring healing and salvation to your world. We pray that we would remain ever faithful to the gospel, the, the gospel that convicts and converts. Lord, I pray that we would not be conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds according to Scripture. Father God, you have been good to us, and we don't fully appreciate that. Lord, you have been merciful to us, and we don't fully understand the depth of that mercy. Lord, you have loved us, and we don't grasp how large that love is. Thank you for the glimpses of the truth that we have. We pray that you would grow those glimpses. We pray that you would grow in us a greater and a deeper love for you and for others. I pray that you would increase in us our humility. I pray that you would uh, remove 
remnants of pride uh, in us. I pray that we would not consider ourselves better than other people. Lord, that's not natural, but we pray that you do that supernaturally. May you be honored and glorified by our lives and by our actions, by the attitudes of our heart, by the witness of our lips. May you be honored and glorified because you alone deserve all glory and power. This we pray in Jesus' name.